This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! Welcome to an MLS pod special. Our guest today, oh, he's one of the most coveted young defenders in the American game. Fresh back from international duty with the hex-ready US men's national team and ahead of DC United's trip to arch-rival New York Red Bulls at Sunday at 1pm on ESPN. We welcome to the pod a man known to legions of admirers as Jewish Messi, a gen who, according to his Twitter, actually succumbed to the world's most grating commercial and donated his automobile to 1877 Cars for Kids. Welcome to the pod, the one and only Mr. Steve Burns. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Happy to be on the show. Oh, I am delighted to have you on because I love watching you play. But I also I love to ask hard-hitting questions first. When you give your car to 1877 Cars for Kids... Do they never play the commercial again for you? Or do you become free of ever having to listen to it again in return? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, the, the commercial got me to donate it, so I guess it worked. <laughs> <sighs> You'll be drinking Heineken before you know it as well. You're very suggestive. My name is Chocker. You are fresh from the high of the 4-0 win against Trinidad and Tobago Tuesday night. Clear to all of us watching at home, Steve. Christian Pulisic. He's learned a few moves from you during camp. Yeah, he's uh he's a good player, man. I mean he's he's obviously young, but he's he can play. He's uh it's tough to defend him. He's quick, he's got he's great at finishing and he's he's got some serious moves. So um he's the real deal and obviously he showed that in the game against Trinidad and I'm expecting a lot more to come from him in, in the future. So uh it's exciting to have him on the team and you know, he's a great kid, he's really humble and it's just a good addition to the team. A lot more to come from you two. I want to go back to the beginnings, Newport, California, known around the world as a home of Steve Aoki and Nicolas Cage. MLS had just started by the time that you were a kid. How much were you aware of it? Or was your head in other sports back then? Um, you know, I grew up playing a bunch of different sports. I was really into baseball growing up and basketball and, and soccer, but um, I didn't have to sit out in soccer, so that was a big deal to me. I loved running around the whole time. And then, uh, you know, I kind of had to make a decision. To I was really into baseball, and I had to make a decision going into high school whether or not I was going to play baseball or soccer, and I decided to choose soccer and kind of never looked back since then. You leave baseball to the likes of Tebow, but it was the sophomore, <laughs> yeah. sophomore year of high school. That was the time... I believe your football career really started to register. You began to be called into youth national soccer camps, meeting guys that were already professionals. Was that when you first thought, bloody hell, I've got what it takes to make this soccer thing a real career? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, getting called into those youth camps and seeing some of the guys that were already pro, I felt like I could hang with them and play at that level. So right then I was like, you know, I'm going to pursue this as a career and I always wanted to be a professional athlete as a kid, and then going from there, I just kind of put everything I had into soccer. So it ended up working out, but going to college along the way was uh, was a big deal to me too. So going to Berkeley was great, and I did it for five full years. So um, it, was, uh, it was definitely a long time coming. How did you become a defender? Did you start as a kid as a five-goal-a-game striker and just keep getting pushed <laughs> further and further back the field as you got older? No, I was actually um, a midfielder, center midfielder, growing up and then kind of transitioned to defensive mid as a I was in high school and then I played D mid my first year of college and then 
in college, uh, you know, my coach Kevin Grimes was a center back, and he kind of converted me to center back alongside AJ Soares, um, and we kind of partnered back there, and I just really took to it and kind of never looked back. Question from one of our listeners, Steve, at Sunny SoCal Rob: Which defenders, American or non-American, or both, have you watched and learned from? Who have you watched game tape of in your past and been like, "Wow, that's who I want to be." I grew up watching a lot of soccer. Uh, one of my friend's moms was from Chelsea, so um, oh. I kind of grew oh, up watching Steve. Chelsea. I know. I know, so I watched a lot of John Terry growing up, and even though he's left side center back, it was uh, a little little different, but I enjoyed watching him play. He's been stalwart there, so I kind of emulate my game after him. That was a trick question, Steve. The answer is obviously Alexi Lalas at Sunny SoCal <laughs> Rob. I will answer that one for you. You know, talking about defenders, I had the opportunity to speak to Arsene Wenger recently, and he told me, he said there's two types of footballers. Most of the time, he said, Guys who love to win are strikers and that the guys who hate to lose become defenders. Do you relate to that? Yeah. Um, the biggest thing is getting scored on. And, um, you know, if we can keep a zero back there, that's, that's my job. So how does it work in the locker room? I mean, it seems like there's a division between people who hate to lose, people who love to win, optimists, pessimists. Do you find yourself naturally hanging out more with defenders than with the others? Do defenders have a frame of mind that bonds them off the field as well as on? I guess I do kind of gravitate more towards defenders. You know, a lot of my good friends on the team are defenders, so I guess it is a personality trait and something you kind of have to have to be a defender. I'm an old man, Steve, so don't take this the wrong way. But from a world football perspective, you were pretty old when you started your professional career. You mentioned five years of college in Berkeley. Yeah. Hard place to leave, we know, we know. But you were, you, were, you were 23 when you came out of college and joined MLS. 25 now, two and a half years as a pro in. Do you feel a pressure in your career to achieve now to make up for lost time? Um, I don't know if I feel a pressure. I wouldn't have traded my times at Berkeley or Cal for anything. Um, I really enjoyed my time there and I got to learn a lot. And I think I grew up as a person and I'm happy with my decision, but... At the same time, yeah, I I'm, I'm became a pro a lot later than most people, so it's, it's tough. You know, you're kind of behind the eight ball. I'm fascinated then by young MLS players and their experiences of their encounters, of your encounters with the legends like Didier Drogba, David Villa, Kaka, guys who've won Champions League, World Cups, Premier Leagues. Do you feel an extra sense of challenge and an urge to prove yourself when you come up against one of them in an MLS game? I don't know if I feel an extra sense of challenge. You're a little bit more aware of them on the field when you're playing, but then it just really comes down to what you do and, you know, you play your game. So I'm doing my job is to defend, you know, a guy like Drogba from scoring. And I don't feel an extra sense of pressure, but you're more aware of the guys out there. You do film on them, and so you see, you see their tendencies, and then you, you know that, Throughout the game, they'll drift in and out of the front line into the midfield, and you kind of just have to keep tabs of them, keep checking your shoulders, and keep an eye on where they are at all times because they can pop up and, and hurt you, and you always want to keep be aware of them. Who's the toughest guy that you've had to come up against? Uh, the toughest guy, I, I think uh, he's 
probably one of the best players in the league, Giovinco. He's so slippery and quick and skillful and can hurt you in every way, you know, free kicks, on the ball, off the ball. So it's tough, you know. You, I can't even get close to foul <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I, I can barely barely touch him when, when he has the ball. I don't know. He's definitely the hardest player to defend in the league. I think you've just given um, my biography, when I write it, of my five-a-side career a name. I couldn't get even close enough to them to foul them. You, you, yeah. <laughs> your transition to the professional game was incredibly quick. Jurgen Klinsmann started tracking you early. When did you first hear about his interest? And what did that do for you motivation-wise? Did it change the way you trained? Did it change the way you took to the field? I think I found out that he was you know, maybe keeping track of me um, towards the end of my rookie year. And then obviously getting called into my first January camp was big. That gave me a lot of confidence. So I think more than anything, it gave me confidence coming back to my club and performing well with them and being a little bit more of a leader um, at that point. You made your international debut January 2015 in a 3-2 friendly loss against Chile. What's it like to join the U.S. squad? An existing culture, you've got to fit into it quickly. It's together for a short period of time, even in January camp. Do you just try and play it cool and try and fit in? Or do you try and announce yourself from the outset on and off the field? I was a little bit older than some of the other guys who have gotten called in in their first January camp. And we had a big group of guys and you just want to go into it with the right mindset that you belong there. So that's kind of what I did. And playing in that game against Chile and being able to represent your country was a feeling that I'll never forget. It's a great feeling, and it's something that you dream of as a kid. You don't want to let it go. I loved it in the St. Vincent game when they played the national anthem on that single steel drum. <laughs> it was uh, it was a little different. I was kind of caught off guard. Yeah, we, we weren't really sure. It kind of sounded similar to the St. Vincent national <laughs> anthem, so it was a little... It was a little odd, but um, oh, hope, yeah, it, it worked. I, I hope that catches on, Steve. It was haunting and beautiful. But <laughs> within that U.S. squad, who are the mentor figures, the ones who don't see you as competition, but who welcome you and teach you the ropes? The last couple of January camps, I was in with Matt Beasler, and you know he was great. He gave me a lot of pointers here and there. And another guy was Michael Bradley. He, you know, he kind of took me under his wing a little bit and talked through some things that I could do better and constructive criticism and things that I was doing well at. So the veteran guys have been great role models for me. The U.S. centre-back position is possibly one of the most competitive within the squad. I mean, symbolised by the fact that in your five starts, you've played with five different partners, and there's just a gaggle of suitors. Brooks, Cameron, Bezler, Omar, Orozco, Tim Ream, Jermaine Jones sliding in there on occasion, Matt Miazga floating around. When you think about your own play, what do you bring that's unique? And where do you believe you fit in the depth chart? What I bring to the table is, uh, I think, an aerial threat, both defensively and offensively. And, you know, to be as consistent as possible, I think that's the biggest thing. I think that's what you see with Matt Beasler and Jeff Cameron and guys like that and John Brooks. They're consistent game in and game out. So that's my goal is to become that. And I just want to keep showing them what I can do. When you put your head on your pillow, Steve, and you dream football dreams, which for me is an every night occasion, lesser for normal people. What fills your mind? What do you aspire to? My biggest goal is to make a World Cup roster. I think that's most players' goals, and that's everything I'm working towards right now is to, to be on the World Cup team for 2018. I oh, can't wait for you to be able to look at Vladimir Putin in the eye when he has to hand you the trophy. It's going to be a magical, <laughs> magical moment. Last one on the U.S. men's national team. I know the U.S. men's national team have a rookie night where they make all the new players sing a song in front of the squad. 
How how do you know that? I just I just some things I know. I don't know much, Steve, but I know they do. What tune came out of Steve Birnbaum's lips? This was actually down in Chile. It was <laughs> Perry Kitchen and I and uh, John Kempen at the time. We uh, performed a little trio of uh, a choreography with singing and dancing along with the Backstreet Boys song. <laughs> <laughs> You Are My Fire, or something like that. Yeah, what a classic. Just a classic jam. It is. A Chicago Fire anthem for the ages. It got the the crowd going, you know, it broke the ice for the awkwardness, and it it was a fun time. I've always wondered how that feels. Does it feel nerve-wracking when you're up there, or is it a delight to have made it and finally feel Mm. that you belong? No, it was definitely more nerve-wracking than anything. (laughs) You're thinking about it all day after practice, and the last thing you want to do is go up in front of all the players and the staff and sing a song that you don't really want to do next time just a hint incorporate a single steel drum it makes everything sound haunting and beautiful <laughs> well, i want to talk about dc united with you set to begin play in a new soccer specific stadium in 2018 any mls fan will know the team currently play in much maligned rfk stadium a ground that's been around since james polk's administration but i was amongst those who watched every dc united home game in their inaugural season oh, back in the beginning and experienced RFK literally bounce throughout the game. It's a very, very special place for many, many of the DC fans. Will part of you be sad to say farewell to RFK? I think a part of everyone here, yeah, will be a little bit sad, but I think everyone's excited also at the same point to have our own new stadium with new facilities. You know, hopefully I think they're going to try to incorporate the bounce of the stands that they have in RFK now into the new stadium, which is everyone's favorite part of the, the stadium. So I think people are more excited than sad to see RFK go, to be honest. Oh, God, I've got to say, if you can make the iPhone America, you can put a man on the moon making a new stadium that has RFK's bounce. It makes me love this country just when I think I can't love it anymore. <laughs> this season, DC United have one of the best defensive records in the Eastern Conference, thanks to you the legendary Bobby Boswell and Annandale, Virginia's Bill Hamid holding it down at the back. But the team have also struggled to score. My favourite NFL team, the Bears, their 85 Super Bowl winning team, they had the same imbalance between the D and the offence. And the two lines, the offensive line, the defensive line, they couldn't stand each other. The linebackers would be like, dudes, we're doing our job. Why aren't you doing yours? Do you ever feel that, that you're like holding down the back as best as you can? And it's just not happening. I don't think we see it that way. You know, we're, we're doing our job at trying to keep goals out of the net. But at the same time, you know, goals are starting to flow for us. We've gotten a, a new group of guys in here. And, um, you know, the last game I played and we scored six goals. So I don't think there's, there's no division between the team. Everyone's excited about these next seven games coming up and making a big push for playoffs. So like you said, the Bears ended up winning that season. So um, hopefully you can do the same. This weekend, you and your teammates travel to New York to play the Red Bulls Sunday, 1 p.m. on ESPN. Oh, the playoff race is tight. You are currently one spot out of the playoffs, two points behind sixth place Orlando, and you face up to your arch rivals, the Red Bulls, at a crucial time in the season. I have to ask you, though, do you players really feel that rivalry with New York, or is that something from the old days, from MLS 1.0? 
No, we definitely feel a rivalry with them. We uh, get up for those games a little bit more every time. It's a big game. Obviously, we need to win up there, and we need to keep pushing forward for a playoff spot. So it makes it even that, that much bigger this weekend. And to get a win there and win the Atlantic Cup would be would be huge for us and to push us uh, forward going into playoffs. So when you do beat them, like you did earlier this season, 2-0, does it mean more to the players post-game, or is it really just a fan thing, Steve? It means the players and the fans. You know, we want to do it for our fans, but I enjoy beating New York. I don't like them. They don't like us. So, you know, we want to beat them. I remember the 1996 Eastern Conference semifinals when I thought Raul Diaz-Arce and Tony Miola were going to come to blows. So I'm going to be tuning (laughs) in just to see a recreation of that 20 years later. I've got to say, Steve, I have loved watching you from the moment I first saw you take the field with DC. Partly because, a tiny bit because... You're the latest chain in my all-too-short list of Jewish soccer legends. <laughs> Johan Nieskens of the Netherlands, Juan Pablo Sorin of Argentina, the legendary Jeff Agus, Benny Fielharber, the Jonathans, Bornstein and Spectre, Yael Averbuch, I think Barry Manilow, Barbara Streisand and Neil Diamond would have to play them uh, across the back in a back three. But few MLS players have been linked to more Israeli clubs than you. But I've got to ask you a Hank Greenberg, Sandy Koufax question. Okay. The next U.S. games, friendlies against Cuba and New Zealand, the New Zealand game. It's October the 11th, Steve, the night, dum dum dum, of Yom Kippur. <laughs> if I you, did not know that. If, <laughs> to be fair, I did not know breaking that. Breaking news, um, breaking news. <laughs> if you called up Steve Birnbaum, would you play? Against New Zealand. Yeah. Well, to be fair, I'm not a practicing Jew. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess that doesn't really apply to me. I would love to play in the game, obviously. And I think uh, against New Zealand, it would be here at RFK. So that'd be even better. America rejoices. Jurgen Klinsmann rejoices. I think the people of DC rejoice because it is at RFK. Steve, I'm going to fast for you. We wish you and all at DC United all the best on Sunday and the entire Burnbaum family. An early happy Rosh Hashanah, Steve. <laughs> rock on. Hey, thank you very much. What a mensch. Steve's DC United play at New York Red Bulls this Sunday, 1 p.m. on ESPN. Oh, I do hope Max Bretos is doing the commentary. I love that man. And the Men in Blazers show. Oh, you don't want to know this. We're back Monday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. There'll be children watching on NBCSN right after the Atlantic Cup of the Premier League. Sunderland against Everton will break down Manchester United, Manchester City and more. It's going to be live. It's going to be awful. Courage.